Welcome back to True Crime San Antonio. I am just another San Antonio native, and thank you for tuning in. There's no new news of the week, but I do have a new segment. And now, it's time for San Antonio True Crimes This Week. A young girl is hailed as a hero for saving her grandmother, who was set on fire by her ex-boyfriend. Roberto Coquelin, 43, is behind bars for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, causing serious bodily injury and arson. The victim's 10-year-old granddaughter tried to fight the attacker as a man poured gasoline and set her grandmother on fire with a lighter. It seems premeditated since the water of the house was shut off. The little girl does what she can before grabbing her two-year-old sister and covering her face with a blanket to keep her from inhaling smoke. The little girl ran next door to get help. It's not something that any little girl should ever have to go through, but I am so proud of the fight that she put up, and I'm sure so is her grandmother, who will survive, despite 35% burns to her body. Coughlin was arrested, and his bond was set for $500,000. Also, a San Antonio mother and her boyfriend are charged in the connection of a death of a boy found at the bottom of a Colorado ravine. Daniel Garcia, 26, and the boy's mother, Nicole Aguilar, 25, both face felony charges of injury to a child, causing serious bodily injury and death. Last week, San Antonio police received information from the FBI that the grandmother claimed her five-year-old grandson had died at a Northeast San Antonio hotel around July 25th. The woman was interviewed by an FBI agent in Costa Rica who said she tracked down her granddaughter down there as well. She stated that instead of the pair reporting the death, they drove to Colorado the next day near the Rocky Mountain State Park. There they buried the body in a remote location near the campsite and fled by car to Mexico and eventually to Costa Rica where she found them. Details claim that the boy had been sick and they did not seek medical help. SAP detectives were able to obtain a surveillance video from the hotel that showed Garcia carrying a lifeless body out of the room and down the stairway. That's when the SAP detective traveled to Colorado and ended up finding the human remains in search of Grand County, Colorado, near the town of Fraser. An autopsy from the medical examiner is pending, however trauma was found on the remains, and reports claim that physical abuse was the cause of death. It was the same clothing that little Dominique was wearing in the hotel surveillance video, and a source says that both Garcia and Angela were in custody in Florida. They will likely be extradited to San Antonio to face formal charges. And now to our episode of True Crime San Antonio, featuring Pearl Brewery founder Otto Kohler. Warning This story depicts accounts of violence and adult themes that may be found disturbing and unsuitable for some. Listener discretion is advised. If you picked up the paper on November the 13th, 1914, the headline read, Millionaire Businessman 
shot to death by Pretty Nurse. The story that preceded is what you would call movie inspirational. Pearl Brewery founder Otto Kohler was dead at the hands of his mistress, who befriended his other mistress, who was hired to take care of his invalid wife. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack. First, a little background. Otto Kohler was born in Altfeld, Hanover, Germany on April 28, 1855. He received his education in the seminary school of Altfeld. Immigrating to the United States with his wife Emma in 1872, he settled in St. Louis and soon found employment with the Grisadec Brothers Brewers. Mr. Kohler then ventured to San Antonio in 1884 to be manager at the Lone Star Brewing Company and then aimed higher as one of the organizers of the San Antonio Brewing Association, known also as the City Brewery, which later became the Pearl Brewing Company. If you're from San Antonio, you know Pearl Beer. Pearl Beer was formulated and first brewed in Bremen, Germany by the Kaiser Beck Brewery, which produces Beck's beer. The brewery found the product that would become their signature brew. Pearl's beer's name came from the Kaiser Beck's brewmaster, who thought the foamy bubbles in a freshly poured glass of the brew resembled sparkling pearls. Early in the history of the brewery, Kohler became its president. He also purchased the property to reopen the since-closed Hotwells Hotel, Spa, and Bath House, located on the San Antonio River on the south side in 1902. Many celebrities visited the Hotwells in its heyday, and their own railroad cars which had access by a spur to the resort. He organized two mining operations and a rubber factory in Mexico as well as serving as president or director in 15 different corporations. He had many associations with the city of San Antonio, which he was proud to call his home, and he was a strong supporter of the Chamber of Commerce. Kohler was one of the first residents to build in the newly opened Laurel Heights section of San Antonio back in that day. The hill on which Kohler built his home, now known as the Kohler Cultural Center, provided a clear view of the city skyline and of course included an unobstructed view of the San Antonio Brewing Association City Brewery. It was said that he built here because while sitting on his porch, Kohler could determine whether his employers were hard at work by the smoke color rising up from the brewery stacks. Otto and Emma Kohler's lives were filled with helping others and proving the community through various organizations and corporations. Otto and Emma never had any children in their long marriage, but their extended family was huge. A large portion of their substantial wealth was spent on helping their families immigrate to the United States from their homeland in Germany. The Kohlers paid for family members' passage to New York and travel expenses to the city of their choice, which was usually San Antonio or close proximity. Once relocated, the Kohlers helped set them up with housing and a job at the brewery or one of the other Kohler-owned companies. In about 1910, Emma Kohler was unfortunately injured in an auto accident, and Mr. Kohler hired a live-in nurse to see after her. The nurse's name was Emma, coincidentally. Emma Dumpke, but we're going to call her by her nickname Emmy. She was in her late 20s, brunette and petite. Not long after joining the household, she accompanied the Kohler family to Europe on an extended stay. Mr. Kohler soon took Emmy as his mistress, all the while 
his wife Emma was bedridden. Not long after, a friend of Emmy's, whom was also a nurse and coincidentally named Emma as well, came by the Kohler home to have coffee. Emma Hedda Bergmeister. We'll call her Hedda to keep track. She was in her mid-thirties, blonde, gray-eyed, and five feet ten inches tall. Emmy told her friend about the intimate relations that existed between her and Mr. Kohler. Otto Kohler would have his cake and eat it too. Being one of the richest men in the Southwest, he bought a little house across the river on Huntstock Street, just off South Prussia. I've seen reports that Hedda stated he deeded the house to her in case Emmy should leave him. Mr. Kohler reasoned he would still have Hedda in the house. Mr. Kohler paid the expenses and gave Emmy $125 a month in spending money and gave Hedda $50 a month. That's equivalent to just under $3,600 for Emmy and just over $1,400 for Hedda in today's times. It's reported Mr. Kohler would drop by once a week or so at night for two or three hours at a time. This arrangement lasted until 1913 when Emmy informed Mr. Kohler that she planned to be married to Mr. Doschel. Shortly before Emmy was to marry, Kohler proposed to Hedda. Hedda would testify at trial that Mr. Kohler, distraught with grief, quickly proposed marriage to her after Emmy's departure. He vowed to leave his wife for her. She refused him, playing it up for the jury like an actress. Quote, I would not leave Mrs. Kohler behind, sick and helpless as she was. End quote. While she passed on marriage, Hedda proposed an alternate source of aid and comfort for the grieving Mr. Kohler. I just gave myself away, she testified, because I loved him. With Emmy out of the picture, Mr. Kohler's full attention was to keep Hedda happy and now paying that 125 a week to her, gallivanting her around town and visiting the Huntstock love nest after dark several times a week. He took Hedda to Germany and gave her two $10,000 letters of credit as evidence of his affection or for services rendered, depending on who you'd ask. But by 1914, things started to go downhill. Hedda suspected Mr. Kohler had another woman and hired a private detective to follow him. He traveled to Germany again and this time without her. Upon his return to San Antonio in mid-October 1914, he didn't visit her. When Hedda got in touch, he asked to meet her at a bar in the red light district with all her papers, the letters of credit, the money she said he owed her, possibly evidence for a blackmail scheme, or so they say. Hedda begged Emmy to return to San Antonio before the meeting, telling her she felt the romance was dead and she feared Otto might want her dead too. Rather than meet at the bar, Hedda sent Emmy to the brewery to ask Mr. Kohler to meet her at the cottage instead. Other reports claim that Hedda feared Otto was to end the relationship and was threatening suicide and that Otto was heading over, hoping to dissuade her. On November the 12th, 1914, at a little after four in the afternoon, Otto Kohler, age 59 and married for 22 years, left his brewery and his horse and buggy and drove to the cottage on Huntstock Street. Both Emmy and Hedda were home. With the only two people to know exactly what happened in that room being Mr. Kohler and Hedda, we can only guess what really happened. According to detailed reporting in the San Antonio Light, Mr. Kohler on that fateful afternoon had brushed past Emmy in the living room and headed straight to the bedroom where he found Hedda lying on the bed with a cloth covering her eyes as she would later testify to having a headache. He reportedly tried to kiss her 
and a quarrel erupted, and one of the Emma shot him with the 32 caliber revolver. Another story claimed the Kohler family told the San Antonio Light that there had been a dispute over a bill that Hedda had submitted for Mrs. Emma Kohler's care. Mr. Kohler drove to the house to settle the matter, and when he and Hedda started arguing, she got frightened and went for her gun. And yet another story has him entering the bedroom, finding her hacking at her left wrist with a steel case knife. He addressed her in German and scolded her for her foolishness. She took offense to his remarks and their fighting ensued. Mr. Kohler tried to take the knife from her and apparently were both armed with guns, as Hedda claims he drew his 25 caliber revolver hoping to frighten her and she shot him with her 32 in fear of her life. Later reports would claim that both guns belonged to Hedda. Their next door neighbor Mrs. Neil Campbell, an elderly German neighbor from across the street who spoke no English and said she heard a commotion and ran out to see Emmy in the front yard screaming. Campbell heard the shots, she testified, so she prudently dashed back into her house for some whiskey in case it was needed. More shots and more screaming ensued. When police arrived, they burst into the cottage, with neighbors all around being drawn by the melee. Blood was everywhere. Some recalled Hedda lying on top of his body. Others said she was sitting alone, or had her head in the lap of Mrs. Campbell, the neighbor. The 32 caliber revolver, still hot from being fired, was lying on the floor. The 25 caliber revolver was on a sideboard, or in other reports, laid next to his body. A case knife lay open on the floor too, and Hedda either had a scratch or a deep cut on one wrist, depending on whose later testimony you choose. She also had bruises on her neck, but some witnesses say she didn't have any bruises at all. One thing was without a doubt, Mr. Otto Kohler was dead. One bullet had broken his neck, another entered his brain just above an eye socket, and a third was in his chest. Several newspapers reported on the murder with headlines like, Nurse Slay's Millionaire and Love Mystery. It said that over 2,000 people came to the Kohler home to pay their respects, and six automobiles were required to transport the floor tributes to the cemetery. A grand jury no-billed Emmy, which means there wasn't enough evidence to prove the charge of murder against her, but could recharge her later if needed. Hedda was hospitalized, then jailed briefly, and released when someone posted a $7,500 bond for her. That's equivalent to $215,000 today. A grand jury indicted her for murder, but she was nowhere to be found. Her lawyer, State Senator Carlos B., told the court she had gone to Germany to nurse wounded soldiers in World War I, while others claimed she was in New York for a couple of years. In late 1917, she contacted the court and said she was ready to stand trial. She must have been a very persuasive woman. By now, former Texas Governor T.M. Campbell was heading her legal team. The trial started January 15, 1918, even allowing for a delay caused by the absence of witness Florence Raymer, one of Texas's first female attorneys, whom the prosecution hoped would testify that Hedda had divulged plans to kill Mr. Kohler to her on the day of the murder. To no avail though, although Raymer 
who had done a midnight flip from town was arrested in Denison and dragged back to testify, where she invoked attorney-client privilege and denied everything. Raymer gave up law soon, only after four years after passing the bar exam in 1914. She then went to LA where she enjoyed a long Hollywood career as Florence Bates and had over 60 acting credits including Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca and La Miserable. Banker J.H. Frost testified about Hedda trying to cash in one of Kohler's $10,000 letters of credit, which she denied she had ever touched. In fact, reports of the trial testimony reveal vastly conflicting versions of almost everything connected to the murder, as we have heard throughout this episode. Although there was general agreement about Otto's two mistresses, and to the fact that Hedda shot him at this point, although she had various versions of her reason for doing so, it was a sordid story which the unfortunate woman had to tell, but one which held the jury and the courtroom packed to the utmost with spectators breathless. The San Antonio Light reported on Saturday, January 19, 1918. Miss Burgemeister, or Hedda as we know her, wore a dress of dark material with a fur hat and muff, her face covered with a veil. First she said she shot him, quote, to protect the honor of my friend, Emma Demka Daschel, or Emmy, as we've come to know her. Then she said it was because he was like a wild bull, and I thought he was going to go after my friend. She also stated that Otto was choking her, and then added he was coming at her with a pistol. But like I said earlier, both pistols found in the house and the case knife belonged to Hedda. Otto apparently arrived unarmed. She said she shot herself in the head after shooting Otto. Somehow she missed. Then she said, since I didn't know if I had a bullet in my brain, decided to cut her wrist. Did you shoot him on the floor after he was dead? The district attorney asked her. I don't know, she said. I only know I shot him as he raised the pistol. I thought he would get me again and I shot him again. Then I raised the pistol to my head and I pulled the trigger. How many times, the DA asked. I don't know, Hedda replied. Your aim was better at Mr. Kohler's than at yourself, the district attorney wryly observed. Testimony and arguments closed the evening of January 22, 1918, just one week after the trial began. The next morning, it took the jury of 12 male citizens less than three hours to reach a verdict. Not guilty. Then they filed past the defense table, where each shook Hedda's hand warmly and congratulated her. A year later, Emma Hedda Burgemeister and a stockman from Leon Springs named J.W. Turley, one of the same 12 jurors, were married in New Orleans. Yeah, you heard that right. This same man not a year before heard testimony of what she was capable of and decided not only was she the victim, but thought she'd make a good wife too. They returned to live in San Antonio in the same cozy cottage at the Huntstock Avenue where Mr. Kohler's life once bled out on the parlor floor. Crazy. Turley's grown son lived in a smaller house on the property. The couple adopted Hedda's German niece and nephew from Berlin. A story in the social pages of the San Antonio Light from 1925 featured the Turley children setting the pace in studying English in the playhouse in the home's backyard. J.W. died in the 40s, and it's rumored that Hedda committed suicide after that. 
but the neat little house on Huntstock, now nestled in the curtains of jasmine and golden Esperanza, still stands. I wonder if the owners that live there now know of the historical piece of property. I'm sure they must. Emma Emmy Dumpke Dashel returned to St. Louis with her husband and lived a similarly quiet life. The original Emma, did you forget about her? The wife that Mr. Kohler allegedly told his mistress he planned to leave came out of the whole sordid affair smelling like a rose. After Mr. Kohler's death, the new widow, then 56 years old, miraculously rose from her sick bed and took care of business. Emma Kohler may have been sick and helpless at some point, but she was a very strong person by all accounts. Plus, she was very smart and very strategic. At a time when women didn't even have the right to vote, a woman running a business was unusual enough, and running a brewery was just unheard of. She succeeded spectacularly. Taking firm control of the company, she wasted no time in modernizing the brewery and increasing production. By 1916, even as Hedda's trial continued, the San Antonio Brewing Association had become the largest in the state, producing 110,000 barrels annually. Operations ran smoothly for years until January 1920 when the Volstead Act was ratified and enacted. The 18th Amendment prevented the sale, manufacture, and distribution of alcohol, signaling the start of prohibition. They were called the Dry Days. To keep the brewery afloat, the San Antonio Brewing Association changed its name to the Alamo Industries. It produced soft drinks and Triple X Pearl, a near beer touted as a healthful, invigorating energy builder and a refreshing thirst quencher. Quite the slogan. It began commercial ice and creamery businesses and offered dry cleaning, sign making, and even auto repair services. She did not let one of her workers go. Alamo Industries narrowed its focus in 1921, changing its name to Alamo Foods Company and specializing in food production. The company dealt with flooding, worker strikes, and low profits in the lean 20s. There were times that the brewery came close to closing, says Jeff Holt, author of Historic Texas Breweries. It was just hand to mouth for several years. Then came the Great Depression that lasted from 1929 to 1933 where Mrs. Emma Kohler was very resourceful. She invested one million of her own money into the business and sustained the brewery after the stock market crash of 1929 and the depression that followed. By February 1933, Alamo Foods Company changed its name back to the San Antonio Brewing Association, confident that beer brewing would be legal again within the year, which it would become. Within 15 minutes of prohibitions end in Texas, 100 trucks and 25 boxcars filled with beer emerged from the brewery. As Emma saw the first legal bottle of Pearl beer created in almost 15 years, she tearfully declared, I wish my poor hubby could see it. The San Antonio Brewing Association was the only brewery in San Antonio that survived prohibition. In addition to working at the brewery, Emma flourished as a social icon and philanthropist. Since the Kohlers had no children, she invited nieces and nephews to live with her in San Antonio. Emma hosted spirited soirees in her Laurel Heights home, which included a ballroom and a bowling alley. She donated 11 acres of land to the city in honor of her late husband, 
with the stipulation that alcohol consumption be permitted at Otter Kohler Park, known today as Kohler Pavilion. And no, I don't know if you can drink there now. At the end of Prohibition, she said, everyone has been drinking booze for years. Now maybe they will drink something that is good for them and have good times like they used to have at the park. Kohler, who was just as resourceful during the Depression, retired after almost 26 years as head of the Texas's largest brewery. But she remained a formidable presence in the company until her death in 1943. The irony, of course, is that none of this might have been possible if the other two Emmas had just stuck to nursing. One family the Kohlers helped bring to the United States was Otto's twin brother, Carl Kohler. Carl and his wife moved to Pennsylvania, where they had two boys. The oldest, born on July 24, 1893, was named after Otto. Both Otto A., the older of the two boys, and his younger were taken to Europe by their parents for what was supposed to be a short trip, but their father Carl became seriously ill and decided to stay in Germany. In 1908, when Otto A. was just 15, his father finally succumbed to his illness and died. Otto A. returned to America and became a ward of his uncle Otto and his aunt Emma. Otto A. developed a special bond with Otto and Emma, who treated him like a son. And in 1921, he left his other jobs and came to the brewery to assist Emma in daily operations. When Emma decided it was time to step aside from her post in 1940, the board members and Emma picked Otto A to be her successor. Emma served as Otto's advisor during the transition and his first years as head of the brewery, a position she held until her death on April 26, 1943, at the age of 85. Otto A. Kohler is often credited with turning the company into a thriving national entity. Although the Kohlers did not own the brewery, after the first Otto, his wife Emma, and now Otto A, the family was very much considered the owners, not only by the community, by the brewery board, and workers alike. Otto A was a strong leader and businessman who learned much from his aunt and uncle. It was this strength that he would have to draw on as turbulent times lay ahead for the brewery and beer brewing industry as a whole. In Mrs. Kohler's will, she designated funds to the Protestant Orphan's Home. San Antonio Association for the Blind and the Community Committee for Crippled Children, in addition to 45 other beneficiaries. In 1952, the San Antonio Brewing Association changed its name to the Pearl Brewing Company. It experienced decades of expansion, recognition, and success, and by its 75th anniversary, the Pearl had become the largest brewery in the Southwest. Otto A. and his wife Marcia assumed ownership of the Kohler house upon Mrs. Emma's death. The second Otto Kohler died in 1969, and he and Marcia Kohler deeded the spectacular estate to the San Antonio Union Junior College District for the use as the Kohler Cultural Center in 1971. In 2001, Pearl sold its product to the Pabst Brewing Company, continuing the brand but closing the iconic brewery. While locals hated the loss, the pearl continues to symbolize the rich history of San Antonio. In 2015, Southerly Fine Food and Brewery brought back the art of brewing to the historic pearl and the pearl's culinary-centric boutique hotel, Hotel Emma. It opened with a supper 
a full-service eatery, Sternworth, the hotel and a bar and club room, as well as Larder, the in-house gourmet market and cafe. Today, a drink called the Three Emmas memorializes the three women at the Sternworth bar inside the Hotel Emma. Its drink is made of pearl beer, of course, rose cordial, amontillado sherry, botanist gin, grapefruit, and lemon juice. The hotel marketing director had told an Express News reporter that one is great and three will kill you. And that's our story. Otto had absolutely no idea what he was getting himself into. And by the time he realized it, it was just a little too late. Now these stories from way back when are crazy when you think about all the history and everything that surrounds it. I mean, you can look up the house on Huntstock Street, it's still there. The Kohler house is still there, it's still just as beautiful. And if you take a look at the landscape back in 1910 or when they built it, it looked right across and you could see the brewery, right? So, I mean, you can imagine him just sitting on his porch and watching the clouds come out the brewery stacks to make sure everybody was working. It's unfortunate that Mr. Otto had to die, but at the same time, like, Miss Kohler was a badass. The way she took over the company and thrived and turned it into a food distribution company to keep afloat, never letting one of her workers go when I read that, I thought, oh man, I gotta do this story because that alone is badass. I, I don't know why all of a sudden after he died, she just was like, boom, I'm ready to get out of this bed. I mean, crazier things have happened, but the way that that just turned around was, was just something that I thought was so interesting. So anyways, I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in. This has been True Crime San Antonio, and I am just another San Antonio native. Hoping to see us through. Take care.